This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, Partially Examined listeners, you're about to hear a very special episode. is a bonus episode inserted at the last minute on a current feature film and related works. Now, we didn't want to delay issuance by more than a week of the episode that we already recorded. Episode 176 is going to be with Dave Pizarro, one of the hosts of the Very Bad Wizards podcast, about various psychological experiments. That will be released next week. What you're about to hear is the first half of our discussion on Blade Runner. The second half will not appear on this feed. We're always looking for opportunities to say thanks to our supporters, since without support we could not record episodes like this or any other episodes. We decided to make part two here a supporter-only episode. Right now, if you go to patreon.com slash partiallyexaminedlife and support us at the $1 level or higher, you can hear the full discussion over an hour longer than what you'd get on this file with no ads. And of course, while you're there, you could listen to the entirety of our previous film discussion on Vertigo. The other way to get this is to go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support, become a Partially Examined Life citizen, and then you'll get not only both of those discussions, but ad-free versions of every podcast we've ever done, and plenty of bonus audio on top of that. So once again, thanks for your support. Thanks for listening. Even if you don't want to contribute, I think you're going to find the following 45 minutes pretty fun. Here goes. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 175 is something like, what makes us human? We're dealing with all things Blade Runner, the 2017 film Blade Runner 2049, directed by Denis Villeneuve, Ridley Scott's 1982 film, and the book that started it all, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick from 1967. For more information, please check out partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linton Meyer, probably neither replicant nor chicken head in Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> this is Seth Paskin grabbing both handles in Austin, Texas. <laughs> That's great. This is Wes Hall 1 dialing a 481 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> this is Dylan Casey dreaming of electric spiders in Middleton, Wisconsin. Very nice. Should we go around and give a little overview, see what we want to get out of this? You, you're the one that suggested this, Wes, so maybe you start. So after our seeing Blade Runner 2049, I suggested to you guys that we do a podcast on that. You know, I have this kind of a obsession with these sorts of movies about androids and the status of their humanity. I gave a talk in Ex Machina and wrote an essay about it. And this, I just, I found the movie to be a great movie, first of all, and touching and really a sort of good launching point for a discussion about what makes us human. And in particular, for a talk about something we actually talked about recently with Dr. Drew, affect. It's something that comes out more subtly in the movies, but it's more pronounced in the book, this question of whether these machine replicants, these very human-like androids can be fully human, you know, not in intelligence. Intelligence is taken for granted. There's no question of consciousness or self-consciousness. Those things are taken for granted. But whether they can be fully human in the sense of fully emotive, 
fully effective and whether they can possess empathy in the fullest sense like human beings. So yeah, the book is really a prolonged discussion of that that makes explicit a lot of the stuff that goes on in the uh, in the movies. So I heard you guys kind of bad-mouthing the original versus the 2049, and after watching 2049 last night, I don't understand that. It was about 17 hours too long, and it struck me not nearly as cinematic and as effective, affective with an A, as the first one. And then today I read the book, listened slash read the book, and I became completely bewildered because the book has layers of nuance and interest that were absent in both movies, which confused me. And then with the book dragging on, and I, I came to the conclusion that these are three extremely flawed vehicles as far as storytelling goes, which are suggestive in, in many respects and took creative and interesting artistic license in many respects. But piecing them all together will be an interesting struggle for us this evening. And so I'm anxious to hear what it is that thrilled you about any one of them and to get into the details of what's suggestive about all of them. So I was the one in our pre-episode discussions that I had thought enough of the original Blade Runner movie that when I got a DVD player in 1991 or whatever it was, this is one of the ones that I bought. Yeah, it's the director's cut. So it must have been after 1992. And I just rewatched that version with my son and found it incredibly slow, punctuated by brutality every once in a while. And I just, I couldn't remember why I liked it so much. And did you say what cut you watched? You watched the director's or the final? So it was the director's cut. It was not the final cut, but from what I understand, that's just updated visuals. You're sure that it wasn't the final? Yes, I'm definitely sure. Because the final has more violence, more violence in it. Yeah, and I saw some of the, uh, you know, looked at YouTube that compared the versions and showed the voiceover parts that weren't there anymore and showed the added CGI violence and stuff. And so I'm clear on all that. And I know, in fact, that I was just not really in the mood that it's, I'm self-reflective enough about my aesthetic experiences that it was just a matter of not that I was objectively judging it to be a bad film, but just that I wasn't high enough or whatever. I wasn't in the proper mode. Also, then when I saw the new movie just a couple nights ago, I was really tired. I actually fell asleep during the beginning of it and kind of had to get refreshed on exactly what happened in some of the early scenes by Dylan and other folks that I saw it with. I was totally with it for most of the movie, but it also, it was not actually a pleasant watching experience for me, even though I, I enjoyed the visuals. Ideally, I would just see the film again. There just wasn't time to do that yeah. before here. So... Given that experience, I just didn't feel like I had a lot to say. I felt like there was so little dialogue in the movie. So I kind of pushed either that we push this off or that we add the book. So I kind of made everybody read the book in the last two days and found the book extremely evocative. I had said originally, like, it's kind of foolish for us to do a movie when it's adjacent to a work by one of the most idea-filled philosophical sci-fi writers that we've ever had. So I'm really glad that we were able to fit that in. And then I've just today been watching a bunch of people on the internet and reading a bunch of articles talking about both movies and picking out, you know, oh, okay, that's an interesting point. Oh, that's, that's another issue. You know, so I feel much more primed about all three pieces of media here. But, you know, I don't want us to get caught up in just pointing out all the differences between them. I think we should try as much as possible to kind of stick to just the themes that come up and, and the variations between how these things are presented in the different media might be interesting in terms of talking about how you can fix, if you're worried about the humanity of the android, well, 
as in the book, they fail these empathy tests. Whereas in the new movie in particular, it seems they cry, they do whatever you want. That's not the difference. The fact that you can depict them in different ways, I think maybe says a little something about why they're interesting to us, what we're supposed to get out of this in terms of philosophical ideas. I had never read the book until this weekend. Ironically, I'd never read any Philip K. Dick. I don't know why. I read a lot of sci-fi when I was young, but apparently I, well, I never read that. I really enjoyed the book, and I found it evocative and multi-layered in very interesting ways that wasn't true in the movie. And so I, I think it sits alongside in an interesting way. I also am not so interested in trying to dissect the exact differences as much as using them as platforms for one another. I saw 2049. I did not go back and rewatch Blade Runner, the original. I've seen it probably three times in my life, but didn't feel the need to go back for that one. I really enjoyed Blade Runner 2049. I was captivated for the whole movie and I found it evocative and interesting from front to back about these questions of our own humanity, our relationship to other humans, our relationship to technology and things in the world such that that makes us human, and what holds those places for us, along with what it means in as a kind of political situation for us to have human-like creatures that are serving us that we don't recognize as human and which was brought up more in in 2049 than it was in Blade Runner but maybe somewhat brought out in the book so I was really looking forward to this discussion from the beginning all right should I try to give a summary of the plot very very brief sure So I'm going to start with the novel and then just tack on a little bit about the movies. So the novel is set in San Francisco, and this is a post-apocalyptic setting. There's been a nuclear war, World War Terminus, and the world is covered in this radioactive dust. And because of that, most animal species are extinct. And there's a sort of ongoing global exodus to off-world colonies by human beings. That colonization effort is sort of aided by the repurposing of a synthetic warrior that was used during the wars to basically be slaves or human beings, to be the ultimate servants and laborers and companions. These are robots, but they're not machines in the sense of being made of metal or synthetic materials. They're completely organic. They're completely like human beings in almost every way. And they're also capable of rebellion. So part of the problem is that robots say in an off-world colony like on Mars, will rebel, kill their masters, and come back to Earth to hide out. So one of the main characters of the book is Rick Deckard, and he's a he's not a call to Blade Runner in the book. That actually, that phrase, that title, comes from a different book. He's basically a bounty hunter who has to find and kill these androids when they return. So he does that by basically administering this sort of test, which is a test for empathy that distinguishes androids from humans, and then he basically mercilessly kills them. And he's motivated primarily by the need to buy, take care of living animals, which is a status symbol in the novel. Sort of empathy is the big thing, and there's a religion called mercerism, which centers on empathy. So making sure that everyone else knows that you're an empathetic person by buying and taking care of animals is really important. And so ironically, Deckard is motivated to go out and kill androids 
by the desire to display empathy to have these animals. So that's the way the novel starts uh, near the beginning with there's six newer model androids that are harder to detect and they've come to earth and his colleague, another bounty hunter has been injured by one of them and he has to take over and find them and kill them. And there's another character in the novel, J.R. Isidore, who is protecting the androids. And so that's the basic scaffolding of the plot. The movie Changes the setting to Los Angeles. Of course, it's cutting down on characters and combining some of them. And what's called the Rosen Association, which creates the androids in the novel, becomes a Tyrell Corporation. But basically, it's the same idea. Except for the the motivation of the androids. So it's yeah, it's just exactly. that in the book, it's that the off-world places suck. It's just that they're horrible to live in. So they just want to come back and live on Earth and be productive members of society. One of them hides out as an, uh, becomes a famous opera singer. They kind of emphasize how much joy she's giving to the world by doing what she's doing. Whereas in the movie, they come back to try to extend their four-year lifespan to something more extensive. So there's a keen existential thing, and they're, they're seeking their God. They're seeking their makers. Whereas there's nothing like that in the book. And in fact, you find out at the end, that the Rosen Corporation, through Rachel, who is the femme fatale in both, you know, very different sort of characters, but you know, starts out as the same character that she's actually in, been in touch with. Even though earlier in the the novel they had set it up just like in the movie, where she's revealed to be an android who didn't know she was an android, and so that's like an important thing, and she's all screwed up by that. But by the end, after she's seduced him, seduced Deckard, it's revealed that she's actually been in touch. And so hence the Rosen Corporation has been in touch with all these visiting androids as well. So there's no conflict between them in the way that, you know, is absolutely central to the movie. The movie is darker in a way. And I mean, there's a darkness to the novel, but it's also very playful. This whole idea that he has a electric sheep that he keeps on his roof, you know, just for appearances. He can't afford a real animal. There's a playfulness and surreal nature to the novel that in the movie is just turned into something tedious, very dark, kind of like techno noir type of thing, which I like as well. You say, Seth, you think it's tedious? It's. I thought you, you're a big fan of Blade Runner. Yes, I'm just saying that I'm a big fan of the tapestry that the original Blade Runner weaves and that sort of like languid settle in a spot and milk the experience for what it's worth. But in terms of the nuance of the story, now that I've read the book, and much like Dylan, I read a ton of sci-fi and fantasy when I was a kid and somehow managed to miss this. The entirety of the religious aspect that underlies the book is completely missing from the movie. And it's critical to understanding what's actually happening in the test, in the concept of even (laughs) the title the notion of animals as being critical to empathy, which is what distinguishes... There's a whole religion built on empathy, right? This concept of Mercerism in the book, that Mercer, somehow after this nuclear holocaust, there's a figure named Mercer who comes out and preaches a religion of empathy. And there's a whole ritual of two things. One, compassion or empathy towards animals, this idea that owning an animal and being empathetic the animal gets you closer to Mercer, not to God, but to Mercer. And then that there's some sort of a ritualistic activity where you actually identify with or join in some kind of like a common experience with other people to identify with this Mercer character as as he climbs up a hill and gets stoned 
obviously a Christ figure. Yeah, the the empathy box. Get stoned literally. Grab the handles. Yes. <laughs> well. Yeah, literally stoned. That's right. Yeah, and this is completely absent from the original, a movie that I very much enjoy experiencing and watching, but would have made a fuck of a lot more sense if I'd read the book before. <laughs> and I'm sorry that I didn't. Well, what, how does it make more sense with, with mercerism? So if you remember the original movie, first off, there's kind of two atmospheric or environmental elements about it. There are the scenes where there's just silence and there's long, long, long shots, long tracking shots of people and him talking or like it could be Pris and it could be JR or it could be Deckard and Rachel or it could be Roy and Deckard. But there's this like long sequences where there's no music and there's just two characters interacting or it's that Vangelis kind of soundtrack thing that's going on in this weird dystopia. And without having the context of understanding that the test itself is to determine how you determine a replicant from a human being is their empathy response. The questions and the whole sequence when he goes to Terrell Corp in the original movie, and there's just that long sequence where Terrell is sitting in the corner and he's questioning Rachel and it goes on and on and on and on. If we knew that what distinguished human beings from replicants was their empathetic response. I see. And that Empathy was the basis of the religion that they were on. That whole movie would have made a hell of a lot more sense. So now I'm like trying to recall if I really understood the Voigt-Kampf test. Just seeing Blade Runner before reading the book, if I could infer from the questions whether it was about empathy, and now I've forgotten. Do you guys remember if it was just confusing, that whole test in the movie? Or It's extremely confusing, and there's definitely an awareness that there's an autonomic response. Hmm that would distinguish a replicant from a human, but it's not explicitly tied to the concept of empathy. I remember it being tied to just emotion. So that typical trope that androids don't show emotion the way human beings do, which is different than the notion of empathy as a specific way in which human beings would connect with other human beings or other entities in the world. Yes, but this is the thing. If you remember from the movie and, and from the book, what are all these questions about? You see a turtle lying on its back in the sun. What do you do? You go to somebody's house and there's a bear rug or a deer head, or you watch a movie from before the war, which, by the way, is not in the movie. They don't reference. It's dystopian, but it's not clear that it's post, like, Holocaust, kind of. In the new movie, it's much clearer. It's much clearer. In the original movie, it's not. But all of his questions have to do with how somebody responds to the concept of empathizing with animals. In the book, the whole religion is based on this idea that you somehow create empathy with an animal and that's your path to Mercer. And that just is completely lost in the movie. Or it's a subtext that's so sub that you can't pick it up. So I think we should just say, because the book tells us so explicitly what the Voigt-Kampf test is, just to describe it. Page 46, chapter 4 at the very end. Rick said this. He held up the flat adhesive disc with its trailing wires. Measures capillary dilation in the facial area. We know this to be a primary autonomic response, the so-called shame or blushing reaction to a morally shocking stimulus can't be controlled voluntarily, as can skin conductivity, respiration, and cardiac rate. He showed her the other instrument, a pencil beam light. This records fluctuations of attention within the eye muscles, simultaneous with the blush phenomenon. There generally can be found a small but detectable movement of... And then Rachel interrupts him 
and these can't be found in androids, Rachel said. So that's the idea. And then, yeah, Seth pointed out there are all these interesting questions like a wasp lands on your arm. What do you do? And she's like, I would kill it. The next response by Deckard is important in the context of distinguishing androids. Rachel says, you know, these kinds of responses can't be found in androids. And Deckard says, they're not engendered by the stimulus questions, no, although biologically they exist, potentially. And this question of how close they come to human beings and when they cross over the line to being more like human beings, that kind of theme is taken up even more in 2049. In some sense, as the ultimate goal, the motivating thrust of the android makers of trying to generate androids that reproduce. Well, in 2049, we sort of get this perspective switched, right? And in, in the book and the first movie, we're seeing it through the eyes of Deckard, who really initially is completely callous towards these androids and doesn't have any problem killing them, although any harm to animals would absolutely horrify him. That's the really nice irony of the book. And then in the in 2049, the bounty hunter is also an android, a newer, more obedient model. And I think what's poignant to me about that is just his obvious desire the movie centers on his desire to be real, his seeming discovery that he thinks he's discovered at some point that he was born and that his memories are not implants, but that they're real and all these things. And then he has those hopes sort of dashed. So I think there's a poignancy to that. And it's not a new sort of tale. It's one that's told in fairy tales, often like Pinocchio, you know, the exactly. whole idea of the boy that wants to be real or the boy had the shivers. That's a Brothers Grimm fairy tale. And the sort of relationship between that and wanting to grow up, essentially. Yeah, and that Spielberg's AI is a really good sci-fi retelling of Pinocchio in robot terms. And then Ex Machina is a lot done with that. So anyway, I think that's the very poignant twist that 2049 gives things. But Dylan, what you were getting at with the empathy test, the first thing you think of with robots, like when you're a kid, is if you're asked to Im- imitate a robot, you do the... You know, I am a robot, blah, blah, blah. What you do is there's no thought of subtracting intelligence or self-consciousness or anything like that, but you subtract affectivity. You sort of, you flatten your emotional responses. And the book and the movies, of course, just, they make that much more subtle. It's not as if the androids are incapable of emotion. They're so close to being human. The conflicts the movies create are so poignant because the android is meant to be as close as possible to human being without being a human being emotionally. They're so, so similar, and the difference is almost infinitesimal, but there is a difference. In fact, that difference is so small that whenever Kay, the bounty hunter android in 2049, comes back from a mission, he needs to go through a test that assures that he still is the docile replicant that he is. And to me, that subtext was, especially at the end, when he fails that, is it's perfectly well known at least to the people giving him the test, that he could cross over in some way to having these more uncontrolled responses. And I guess it's left open whether that is because they're worried about them becoming human or crossing that boundary that makes it much more fuzzy, or if it's that it has to do just simply with docility. Both are sort of left as possibilities. So there is a thing in the movie where I think it's explained that, so the memory implants are there for a reason. They are, quote unquote, a pillow for emotions. 
So without them, the androids tend to be emotionally unstable, actually. And you kind of get that in the first movie as well. They're not emotionless. They're just really emotionally unstable. In other words, they don't know how to regulate affect. It's not primarily that they lack affect, although the book emphasizes the lack of affect. But it's a problem of affect regulation, which memory implants are supposed to solve. And K has to be tested to see if that regulation is through whatever memory and that sort of artificial regulation is stable, especially in light of the traumatic stuff. So basically those routines he goes through are after the trauma of having to kill someone. They need to make sure he's still a stone cold killer afterwards, that he's not being affected by it. They're trying to suppress his humanity ultimately. This feature of human beings being distinguished by emotional responses is a theme you pointed out in other AI kinds of things. It's also, I mean, I thought of both Spock and Data, thinking mm-hmm. of Star Trek kinds of things, where Data is that sort of classic Pinocchio-type character who wants to be human and is treated very often generously, but also has is distinguished by all kinds of performance enhancements, intelligence, physical performance, and that's the way a lot of these androids are portrayed, even and or non-humans in the case of Spock. I mean, Spock is an alien. He's understood to be a biological entity, but he's not human. And one of the ways in which that's distinguished is that he both has certain kinds of physical and mental excellences that human beings don't have, but he also has this flat affect that he's constantly trying to tamp down because, in fact, he's half human, right? So that that theme of emotional responses as making us human beings resonates through lots of this different literature. And in fact, it makes me want to point to even among human beings, when we have stories about us, that we would point to people really displaying their humanity when they have, the more outrageous their emotional response, the more some ways human they are. And somehow they're sort of taken over by their emotional response that somehow makes them human. Yeah, it's interesting. In Star Trek, the original, you know, it's kind of a common theme in that whenever there's any I'm using my gut instinct. I'm using my emotions to make a decision that that is a distinctly human of all the species that there are. It's not just in contradistinction yeah. to the Vulcans. McCoy, Dr. McCoy is the foil to Spock, right? He's the rageful person of Irish heritage. <laughs> well, and also Kirk, right? Who makes decisions, you know, based upon his gut and his intuition. Kirk is more like, not to get this out on Star Trek, <laughs> track, but he's more like a fusion of the two, right? He's the leader, so he has the sort of, yeah, the planning intellectual side to him, but the emotional side, and then Spock and McCoy are like split off parts of him, the, you know, the id sure. and the, the intellect. Deckard's wife, Iran, in the very beginning, page five, she's basically talking about how they have these things called mood organs where they can dial up a different mood, and she's intentionally dialing herself into despair. And why would she do that? (laughs) Her explanation is the alternative is not feeling anything. And that's really akin to mental illness. And she uses the phrase, quote unquote, absence of appropriate affect. Why would she choose depression, you know, and hopelessness as opposed to other kinds of more extreme? If you could choose between being manic and depressive, wouldn't every manic depressive choose to be manic? It does seem by the end of the book that the mood organs sort of, they're a supplement. It's like taking a drug, but they're not totally effective. Like you can't just completely blot out. If you're underlyingly depressed, you can't just dial up 
the happy thing every day. Because at least you'd have to go through the activity in the morning of dialing up the happy thing. So you kind of realize what you really are. So I think choosing depression is a way of wallowing in it. It's like, I'm going to sit around and eat Haagen-Dazs and watch a romantic movie, watch Titanic or whatever, because I'm already feeling depressed. Here's her explanation on page five. At that moment, Iran said, when I had the TV sound off, I was in a 382 mood. I had just dialed it. So although I heard the emptiness intellectually, I didn't feel it. My first reaction consisted of being grateful that we could afford a Penfield mood organ, but then I realized how unhealthy it was, sensing the absence of life, not just in this building, but everywhere, and not reacting. Do you see? I guess you don't. But that used to be considered a sign of mental illness. They called it absence of appropriate affect. So I left the TV sound off, and I sat down on my mood organ and experimented, and I finally found a setting for despair. So the explanation is that the affect is not appropriate. That's why you would choose despair. You would choose despair because the circumstances, the world which has been obliterated and is covered in radioactive dust and you know, there's an absence of life everywhere that calls for despair. Then she says that she programs it to feel that way twice a month, which is about the reasonable amount of time to feel hopeless about everything. <laughs> right. And, and then Rick replies, but you'll never get out of that. How can you do that to yourself? Despair is like that about total reality is self perpetuating. So she then replies, I program an automatic resetting for three hours later. 481, awareness of the manifold possibilities open to me in the future. Do hope that, he says, I know 481. <laughs> this whole beginning is so yeah. like winning and so funny. And like it's immediately just, you can't really stop reading after the way all this starts. It kind of goes beyond the frame of a mood because <laughs> that's not really a mood to say like, oh, well, I'm hopeless about this or I, I feel optimistic <laughs> or I want to watch TV no matter what's on. It's mood nuanced beyond nuance because it's well beyond the concept of an emotion that we talk about where he programs the mood where she recognizes her husband's wisdom or something. That's how that whole scene ends, yeah. right? You know, always knowing what's right or whatever. And that's not what we would typically consider a mood. Kind of a suggestion. It's a suggestion. It's really a way to consciously manipulate your experience beyond just your mood, but how you experience the world. Your affect with respect to the world, right? Your affect, exactly. So it's interesting that later there's a, another Penfield device that is related to this that they talk about that you could use to stun. Why they don't just use this on the androids in the first place? It's something that I think that Rachel provides to Deckard, right? That yeah. To protect himself in case they get, while they're having a tryst, in case the androids jump on them, then he can click this thing. And what it really does is it uses these Penfield waves to overwhelm. So it ends up stunning regular people. It would actually end up killing androids because of some particular something in their vagus nerve that's more sensitive. So it just seems like you could just walk around flashing this thing instead of giving the void contact and... uh just make it part of the monthly tornado alarm as you just shoot Penfield waves out through the universe. I, yeah. <laughs> but for whatever, the point is not to pick apart potential plot holes, but just that it must be something like suggestion, because otherwise, couldn't you use this to like inflict those uh, numbered moods on anybody offensively? It has to be a reason that you can only kind of do it on yourself, that you have your mood organ, and I dial this thing for you and this for your wife. I mean, I will say, by the way, Penfield was a real neuroscientist and who in the 70s, That's he discovered, awesome. and I just, I... <laughs> was into this when I was in high school, he could basically by electric, you know, he would have people's brains open for some surgery or another. And while he was doing that, he was like, okay, what, you know, I'm going to electrically stimulate this part 
of your brain and tell me what you feel. And he found that by stimulating certain areas associated with memory, that he basically could get you not just to remember things through stimulation, but to re-experience the thing as if it were actually happening. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, that's just that just makes it su- such a great image and idea on Dick's part. That's just so awesome. Yeah, so I was imagining like their brains are outfitted with something that's connected to the controller outside or something. Something has to be zapping their brain or, you know, stimulating their brain electrically. Well, or, it could be wireless, you know, it, it is 2021, right? Well, yeah, that's what I mean. They like have an <laughs> implant that you can dial. And this actually, there are such things. Like for people with Parkinson's, like, they've used this. You can insert a probe into the brain and they've basically given a dial. And if they turn up the dial high enough and you've had the stimulation in the right place in the brain, you can eliminate the symptoms. This kind of thing is, without explanation, manifest in 2049 with Neander Wallace, who has this characteristic of more than anybody else looking like an android. He has all of these mechanical accoutrements associated with himself, and in fact has these devices that click onto his neck. There, At one point, one of the android assistants comes out and has a, a little tea box that has a whole row of different kinds of attachments that connect to his neck. And you know, we just experience this one kind of functionality. And then he has these kind of vacant eyes, which seem to clearly be mechanical in some way. They're not biological, that are connected into his body. And he has this ability... These other extra devices that look like rocks, but they clearly have eyes on them and other kinds of sensory activity to them. So they're sort of hovering around him and in his environment. So he's expanded his experience of the world in this way, and he wears these monk-like cloaks. Yet he's trying to create the best form of slaves ever to have as many as possible that can reproduce on their own. And it wasn't really made explicit in his role, but it seemed to me he was representing kind of human being that became more android-like in the way I usually think of the word android, that is of a cyborg. So he's sort of a super enhanced human who's now going to have replicated actual humans be his slaves. That was sort of the vision that I imagined. So that's the second half of our overall theme. How do you narratively design androids so that we can argue about whether they're effectively persons or not, but then we also need to have elements in these stories where the people are not acting like you would hope people would act in terms of their natural humanity, that even if you want to say that empathy makes us most human, and even in the book they brag about that, well, the fact that they're using these Penfield mood organs to dial up them, you know, there's something artificial about that, even though this is the thing that they're taking the most pride in, there's something about their emotional ability. The very obvious irony of the book is that he's a callous murderer, you know, Deckard, far from being empathetic. And there's no doubt that the androids ought to be empathized with, that they're essentially human. Well, and J.R. Isidore, he's not in the movie, as I recall. He becomes J.F. Sebastian in the movie. Yeah, yeah. but it's a completely different character, right? Sebastian is this genetic engineer Superman, right? And a genius, yep. Designs little robots that... He's an idiot savant, whereas in the book, the guy's just an idiot. Yeah, and in fact, it's an important theme, right? He's a chicken head. He's somebody who's been damaged by radiation enough that he can't pass an intelligence test to get off-world. 
And so there's this sort of subclass of human beings that Deckard isn't part of, that are basically condemned to stay on Earth. They're barely more than an android. And he has this effect of realizing he needs to be with other people. And in fact, when the androids show up, he is happy to be their servant. Well, maybe happy is the wrong word. He is content. (laughs) He's content to be their servant because it gives him validation and meaning in his life. Even though they end up doing something more disturbing and cruel to him than anybody could have done with the deal with the spider and taking the legs off the spider. So at least he's willing to try it out. He realizes how lonely he's been when he meets this woman. Then having, just like in the movie when basically the boyfriend shows up, except in the the book it's an extra couple, he's still willing to serve them. But like that whole thing happens within the space of a day or two. So it's not like this is the permanent arc of his character necessarily. He rats them out. He says he'll, he'll protect them. He's agreed to, you know, lie to the, when the bounty hunter comes to the door, he's going to lie to them. But then this thing happens, as you mentioned, with the, you know, he finds a real spider, which is a very a rare thing to find. And Pris, the original one that he was attracted to, the one that he's most familiar with, you know, in the short time that he's known any of them, wants to just see, can it still move with only four legs? And just rips off, you know, four of them completely callous. And this is supposed to, you know, show how in the book, there really is. It's not just the void conf. It's not just a subtle thing on eye movement. It's like as bad as the humans might get in terms of being some of them being cold bastards and manipulating themselves. Like the androids really are designed in the book to just lack an affect that is according to the sentiments of the reader, you would think desirable. But according to both Isidore and Deckard at various points, they're constantly noting, and we can read some of the passages because they are subtle, but they're constantly noting how their tone is kind of cold or they're there intellectually, but they just don't seem to be making the right emotional connections. So almost like, you know, you would think of someone in the book, the explicit connection is made to people who are schizoid. After this thing happens with the spider, he's upset by this. And there are also, there's a thing with mercerism that comes up that we can talk about later, but that he ends up leaving and you know running into Deckard and completely just telling him where they are. The implication is more that less than he's betraying them is more that he's just caught off guard somehow. His low intelligence damaged by radiation is you know maybe making him not think so clearly, but he's certainly not like going out of his way to protect them anymore. So I, I think that having the truth of what they really are revealed by the spider incident means that he's not necessarily content to be their servant, you know, indefinitely. Yeah, the whole spider thing too is a callback to this theme around what are called kill I want to juxtapose his betrayal with him insisting at the end that he was going to move back to the city to be around more people and that I came away feeling like it made a huge impression. He was horrified by the spider incident, but it didn't seem to me that he made that distinction of that being something that wasn't a deal breaker. Well, not only was it a deal breaker, it didn't necessarily make them not human. We don't know how how terribly he was treated by humans before. Exactly. It was a definite display of lack of empathy the whole thing is repulsive just as a reader the way pris is dismembering the spider so callously but of course it's also repulsive the way deckard is just running around (laughs) killing androids so that's the parallel and you know children do that sort of thing too so it doesn't deprive you of your humanity if you have that capacity for being unempathetic in certain situations doesn't make you not human. In fact, you could argue that there's something essentially human about it if you can define an other. You know, the whole thing about lack of empathy, the way mercerism is weaponized empathy is all bullshit. It really is. And the androids say that at some point. It's a scam, you know, when it comes out that it's a scam. 
It's a way to define others as subhuman so that you can kill them. So you do that with a spider because a spider is just a spider, unless your religion of empathy has turned animals into the the appropriate objects of your, your empathy. There's a callback. The spider comes up earlier in Deckard's rationales of what's wrong with androids. So the idea is that they are something like the killers. So the idea of the killers and Mercerism, it's the people who bombarded Mercer's brain, a certain module in his brain with radioactive cobalt. The idea, I think, is just it's the people who have persecuted and martyred Mercer. Those are the killers. And at a certain point in the novel, we get Deckard identifying the androids with the killers. So this is chapter three. He'd wondered, as had most people one time or another, precisely why an android bounced helplessly about when confronted by an empathy measuring test. Empathy evidently existed only within the human community, whereas intelligence to some degree could be found throughout every phylum and order, including the arachnida, spider. For one thing, the empathetic faculty probably required an unimpaired group instinct. A solitary organism such as spider would have no use for it. In fact, it would tend to be to abort a spider's ability to survive. Moving down, evidently the human robot constituted a solitary predator. Rick liked to think of them that way. It made his job palatable in retiring, that is killing an Andy. He did not violate the rule of life laid down by Mercer. You shall kill only the killers. Mercer had told them the year empathy boxes first appeared on Earth. And in Mercerism, as it evolved into a full theology, the concept of the killers had grown insidiously. A Mercerite was free to locate the nebulous presence of the killers wherever he saw fit. In other words, free to dehumanize others as a killer so that they could be killed. For Rick Deckard, an escaped humanoid robot, which had killed its master, which had been equipped with an intelligence greater than that of many human beings, which had no regard for animals which possessed no ability to feel empathetic joy for another life form's success or grief at its defeat, that for him epitomized the killers. So I thought it was just important to bring out that part of it, because I think in the end, you know, at that point with the spider, Pris is dismembering the spider is a direct callback to this. And the sort of chain of otherization and dehumanization that you can use to sort of justify violence, right? Oh, it's just the spider. Oh, androids are just like spiders. They're solitary predators. They're killers. And then the tying of that to a religion in which the persecutor is the killer, is the subhuman one that can be killed. Well, maybe we should get into a little more about the religion here before we bounce back to the movies. In what sense it is or is not bullshit. What's going on while the spider's being dismembered is that, I guess one thing we haven't touched on is how people are brainwashed. So there's a lot of Debord and Adorno kind of critique going on, really in both places, though in the movie it's just the more familiar giant ads (laughs) selling sex, that that is the way that people are kind of lulled into submission. But in the book, it's using religion. It's much more of a 60s critique, such that the people are dull conformists and parochial. And so that that whole, you know, how am I supposed to feel and all that stuff, that's definitely part of it. There's two ways that that works, that there's this uh, ever-present TV host, that there's like one show that's on that's like the worst kind of game show, talk show, bullshit with the same shallow guests that are on over and over again should be very familiar to anybody that has had a TV, especially in the olden days of when you had to sit through commercials and all that. And the commercials are all for always for leaving the earth. So there's that buster friendly 
this character that Isidore is very much taken with. And then there's the Mercerism thing, which is kind of a counter to that, in that it's revealed at the end that Buster Friendly reveals that Mercerism is in fact a scam, that there really wasn't a Mercer, that it was uh, somebody on a soundstage, and there's, you know, produces proof of this, and the androids tell Isidore, yeah, actually, Buster Friendly is one of us. But that's really kind of the, an android plot then to get rid of what is actually sort of effective about the religion. The religion is not just pure bullshit. Like they're actually engaging in a communal act. Like when they hook themselves up to this empathy box such that they're reliving Mercer's Christ-like or Sisyphus-like experience of climbing up a hill on a desert and people are throwing rocks at you and, and the people connected to the empathy boxes are actually receiving the wounds in, in real life of these rocks hitting them. But they're also sensing the other people there. And they talk at the end about how when Deckard is happy that he's finished this, you know, he thinks he's gotten a uh, real toad and that his wife says, you really owe it to the commune basically to hook up to the empathy box and share this experience with them. And although strangely, as you share it, it kind of gets sucked away from you. It gets diffused over everyone else. So if you're depressed and you hook up, then your depression gets lessened because it gets shared. If you're joyful, your joy gets lessened because it gets spread out. But it is an authentic connection to people. And that's certainly in all of the three things we see, you know, loneliness is, is kind of the primary enemy. So the fact that in the book here, you have a physical way to counteract that other than just moving closer to the city and living near people like is pretty important. So I think the other part of the critique, though, is not just that. So what Buster reveals is that, you know, Mercer is played by this actor, Al Jerry, on some Hollywood set, basically. He doesn't exist. So that's part of the debunking. And then at some point, Buster Friendly says Mercerism is a swindle. I think it's page 208. But then there's another critique. It's a critique of the way Mercerism is used. But ponder this, Buster Friendly continued. Ask yourselves what it is that Mercerism does. Well, if we're to believe it's many practitioners, the experience fuses, and then Ermgard, the android, jumps in and says, it's that empathy that humans have. And then, but Buster goes on, so it fuses men and women throughout the soul system into a single entity, but an entity which is manageable by the so-called telepathic voice of Mercer. Mark that. An ambitious, politically-minded, would-be Hitler could... And then we leave Buster for, you know, more comments by Irmgard, who ultimately will agree with Roy Batty that the whole experience of empathy is a swindle. But I think it's important to note that, you know, I call this the weaponization of empathy. You know, empathy is a double-edged sword. It can be used to define an appropriate in-group for one's empathy and demonize an out-group. So Buster's critique there is actually getting at something. This idea that empathy can also be used to unite a bunch of people into a mob who are going to demonize others and persecute them. Well, that sounds like a good place to stop our first half. So if you want to hear the rest of that discussion, you actually have to become a Partially Examined Life supporter. We're not going to put part two on the public feed. We're going to put it at patreon.com slash partially examined life. Even if you subscribe at the $1 level, you can get the full unbroken ad-free discussion, including this second half. Or if you're a Partially Examined Life citizen, you can go to partiallyexaminedlife.com and you'll see already, if you get on the citizen feed, that the full discussion, including our second half, is already right there. See you later.